Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm usually the host of the New Books and Genocide Studies channel, but I occasionally pinch hit on New Books and Sports, and I'll be doing so occasionally this spring. And today, I'm thrilled to welcome Kurt Kemper to the show. Kurt is Professor of History and the Director of the General Beadle Honors Program at Dakota State University. Uh, and his main interest is the history of sport, especially in the mid-20th century. He's the author of College Football and American Culture in the Cold War Era. And if you're interested in that book, you can find a podcast with Kurt uh, recorded uh, a few years ago about that on the website. He's written a survey text about American sports history. And today we're going to talk about his book, Before March Madness, The Wars for the Soul of College Basketball. The book is an excellent examination of the way in which sports was governed in the first two-thirds of the 20th century. And the ways college basketball served as the lens and location for arguments within the NCAA, the NAIA, the AAU, and a variety of organizations which were vying to regulate amateur sports in the U.S. Um, As I said, I teach at Newman University, and uh, my first semester on campus was the first semester Newman was applying to become a Division II school instead of an NAI school, because they believed that being part of the NCAA would bring us increased prestige and increased media attention, and thus increased money and reputation. Um, And that discussion that I found here, I see um, is resonating from arguments and discussions that happened in Kurt's book. It's a terrific book. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, talking with him about it. So Kurt, welcome. Thanks for joining us again on New Books and Sports. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So it's been a little while since you've been on. Maybe uh, for listeners who didn't hear the earlier interview, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in sports history. Um, Well, actually, as an undergrad at the University of South Dakota many, many years ago, um, I had an honors seminar um, that was on athletics in ancient Greece. Mm. Um, And we spent most of the semester examining the way in which the Greeks viewed sport. Um, And it was nothing like the way we are taught to think about the modern Olympics. Uh Uh, But then the the instructor asked us also to to think about contemporary issues in sports and and what kinds of parallels we might find. And um, one of the things that he suggested I read because he knew of my interest in college football was what was then a recent book out on the scandal at SMU in the in the 80s. I'm dating myself here very rapidly. Um, and I was intrigued to the way in which the issue at SMU was intertwined with the energy industry and economic changes in Texas and demographics. And in other words, all kinds of things that really had nothing to do with the outcome of games. Um, and that immediately caused me to begin to think about sports as not something that was just a diversion on a weekend afternoon, but as exemplary of how American society works and the way we think about meritocracy and 
you know, democracy and capitalism and competitivism and, and all of these things. Um, and that's really, you know, shaped then the way I think about sports is it's, it's really a prism through which to look at, at other aspects of, of American society. Nor deny that I'm old enough to remember the scandal at SMU. Um, having gone to Ohio State and Michigan State, it's not the only scandal I've seen. Um, so you wrote about college football before. This book is about the NCAA and basketball. Why, why did you decide to write this book? Um, well, actually, it wasn't the book I was intending to write. Uh, but as as I think most academics sometimes do, we we uh, sort of get into a project and and get detoured or or find new avenues. And um, the book that I thought I was going to write, I, I I really just didn't find enough subject matter there. You know, there wasn't anything there really. Mm-hmm. But but in trying to find that thing, um, I kept finding stuff that I wasn't aware of, and and the book kept morphing into different directions, and I would find new collections that you know brought up new questions that raised, you know, answers and took me in different directions. And um, so this was a, I'm not really a a fan of college basketball much. Mm -hmm. I knew very little about it, Mm -hmm. um, which was, was good for me because I didn't, you know, I didn't come with any pre-existing assumptions um, and, and it really forced me to, to, you know, engage in a tremendous amount of secondary work to make sure I was on fairly comfortable ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allowed me to find all kinds of, of interesting strands to bring together into the book. Let's talk about that book. And maybe the place to start with this is to ask the question, why is there an NCAA at all? <laughs> um, public legitimacy is the, the short answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, the founding of college uh, sports uh, or of, of, a, of the regulation of it with the NCAA comes from college football. Uh, but the making of the NCAA, as we really now understand it, comes from basketball. And that was a component that I had never thought about before and that a few scholars have really examined. We've all, you know, football continues to be the most prominent in terms of its media coverage and in terms of the money generated. Uh, but we often ignore the fact that the NCAA really doesn't control football, at least not the money of it. Um, and that's a whole separate side conversation. But um, it was basketball that really allowed the NCAA to become the regulatory beast that it did for a while anyway, um, because of the revenue generated by the basketball tournament. Um, and, and relative back to your introduction about Newman's transition, and we are witnessing a similar discussion here on my campus about jumping from the NAIA to the NA to the NCAA. Um, one of the things the NCAA did very consciously and very successfully is create um, in the middle part of the 20th century, the notion that NCAA sports is college sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it comes with a sense of not just um, academic legitimacy, but the implication of um, somehow academic legitimacy. Um, I have a colleague here whose child went to the University of of um, of uh, Nebraska, and when they jumped to the Big Ten, there was all kinds of arguments that somehow this was going to make their academics more legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, here in the state of South Dakota, uh, about fifteen odd years ago, uh, South Dakota State University was the first state school to jump to Division One, and their university president at the time that she made that announcement. Uh, looked forward to a day when that also allowed them to embrace what she called Division I academics. Um, so, so there is this perception, whether it's legitimate or real or not, um, that somehow big-time sports conveys, um, you know, this, this cachet. Um, and so the NCAA has, has been sought out by schools like Newman and perhaps like my own, as somehow an elevation in their own standing. Um, you know, the NCAA maintains still to this day um, real estate in DuPont Circle at one DuPont Circle, which is where all of the major academic, um, you know, sort of lobbying agencies are. The NEA has offices there. In other words, they want to position themselves as a player and a voice, um, not just in athletics, but in academics as well. Um, and so they, you know, it's a sort of a symbiotic, or perhaps you could call it a um, uh, what's that word? Where you know, an unhealthy relationship where both sides are dependent upon one another. 
my entry level sociology is failing me right now. Codependent, <laughs> that's the phrase. It's a codependent relationship. So that's that's where the NCAA is now. It seems to me, at least from reading your book, that it's by no means inevitable that that, that happened. Um, and so maybe I'll start by saying, um, you start the book with an account of of three separate national basketball tournaments. So how did it end up with three separate national basketball tournaments encompassing regional variations and styles of play and rules disputes and disputes about how American um, athletes were gonna represent their country at the Olympics? Um, We, of course, now, the only tournament that matters is the NCAA. That was not true in the 10s and 20s and 30s or the 20s and 30s. So, so what happens? How do you get three tournaments? Well, actually, you could argue that uh, it's a, a story of five tournaments. Wow. Um, and, and one of the things I struggled with with the book was to try to how to simplify some of these contestations. And it turned into sort of an alphabet soup of organizations. Yeah. But um, if you want to go back to the beginning, the, the dominant organization, organization in, in early basketball was the AAU and the YMCA. Uh, the YMCA founds the game and, and it becomes overwhelming for them from a competitive standpoint. And so the AAU willingly sort of takes over the, the running of it. And they ran a tournament um, that was the only national basketball tournament uh, through the, the, the 20s um, and into the 30s. Um, and it was ostensibly amateur, but in the same way that amateurism in the United States has always been almost impossible to define and almost always just as equally violated. Um, it was governed by companies who were willing to sponsor teams that were ostensibly, you know, just employees uh, who happened to play basketball on their spare time, but was in reality full of people who were incentivized, you know, to be to devote themselves to basketball. Um, and so it was really pseudo professionalism. And so the colleges struggled uh, to find any sort of equal footing there. Um, Another thing was that the AAU, in an effort to try to gain control over all amateur athletics in 1905, uh, mandated that any AAU teams that wanted to play college teams, those college teams had to answer to the AAU. In other words, they were basically attempting to bring college athletics under the AAU um, umbrella. And I find that not in uh, uncoincidental that that's the same year the NCAA was founded. I think that was part of a the power struggle that would go on for the next 35 years uh, between the AAU and the NCAA. So they didn't feel they really had a good home for basketball in the AAU. Um, and what really became apparent uh, about the inequities of college uh, uh, sports was the way in which the Olympic Committee attempted to structure the tournament process for the 1936 Olympics, which also put the colleges at not only a disadvantage competitively, uh, but from a a financial standpoint. Um, And so both of those were factors in how the colleges sought out to create their own tournament environments. Um, And the the first expression of that uh, was actually probably the, the, the least known of the three tournaments that you were referencing which is the one that eventually becomes the NAIA uh, tournament. Uh, It was founded because small schools got really no recognition um, by, you know, the NCAA at the time. um, And they were not, you know, in any way, shape or form, an equal participant in the uh, AAU tournament. Um, And so they attempted to create their own tournament that they believed would create a an open environment that would welcome all teams um, and the champion of which would likely, they hoped anyway, be a a valid entrant into the U.S. Olympic tournament. Back in the day, we didn't select Olympic teams by individuals. Uh, We selected teams, basically. So they had a tournament experience to identify who the U.S. Olympic entrant was. So that was what created the, the NAIA tournament. Um, the problem with that is that um, it wasn't really dominated by the NCAA and competitive interests. Uh, another thing that, that uh, troubled uh, many people in the colleges was that when the NIT was created, it essentially modeled itself after college football bowl games. In other words, it was basically run by the media and commercial, mostly the, the hospitality industry in New York, designed to bring people to New York um, and, and allow the, 
the writers in New York to have access to content and they got to control essentially the, the running of it and the profits of it. And, and when you look at the criticism of the NIT early on, it's exactly a replica of the kinds of criticism that was leveled at college football bowl games. So the NCAA, which is the last of the three tournaments to emerge, wants to position itself as an antidote to the NIT because it's going to be run by the colleges, but it's going to be run for the benefit of the major commercialized programs, not the smaller schools that tended to gravitate towards the NA, what becomes the NAIA. Um, so the, the NCAA tournament is, in fact, completely a reactionary event um, to, to the forces that were shaping college uh, basketball in the, you know, the first 30-odd years. Um, yeah, I was struck with your comment about bowls and about big college. So as I was reading the, the, the account of the, 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 what will become the NAIA tournament in Kansas City, I was struck by the number of people who were movers and shakers in that who were from colleges that many people have not heard of now. And about how many of the teams that were basketball powerhouses in that first third of a century are colleges that don't have significant, or maybe I should say, um, commercial, uh, nationally visible sports programs now. Um, So maybe you could say a little bit about just the broader context of university athletics in that first third half of a century and, 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 and what big time commercial sports meant at that point? Well, one of the things that I hope is abundant in the book, um, we, I think we tend to think of college athletics in very singular terms, which is essentially an indication that the NCAA has essentially won for lack of a better phrase. Um, but also academics and the way we examine big-time sports, we've generally been fixated on looking at the big-time commercialized model and, and then the question of reform. In other words, um, you know, most academics acknowledge that there's deep intellectual and, and, and philosophical flaws with the role of, of intercollegiate athletics and the commercialism. So we've generally said, okay, there's, there's, there's the, you know, the, the excesses, the athletic department left unsupervised, and then there's the pointy-headed intellectual academic reformers who want to fix it. Um, and one of the things the book attempts to examine is that the discussion of academics and intercollegiate athletics is a very, very complex issue. Um, and the first thing is, is that we have to understand that there are a lot of different players um, in the world of intercollegiate athletics. The ones that almost all of us know are the big time, what we call big time purveyors. These are the people who are on ESPN regularly, who are in bowl games, who are in the NCAA tournament, and they pursue a commercialized model. And what we mean by that is they're engaging in sports for profit. It is essentially a minor league kind of of sports environment. Um, And these are the schools that we all know, you know, Michigan, UCLA, LSU, Alabama, um, Ohio State. Um, and, and so these are the ones that gain the most amount of attention. Um, then you can argue that the flip side of that are the ones who want to call for reform, um, who want to rein in the big time model and uh, allegedly, you know, have college sports for, for, you know, for the fun of it, for, you know, college sports for college uh, students. Uh, this would we wouldn't have 110,000 seat stadiums. You know, we, we wouldn't be having games on a Tuesday night when there's class, this kind of stuff. And, and generally, we identify that crowd as the the private traditional liberal arts colleges, you know, Oberlin, Swarthmore. Um, these are schools who have largely, you know, uh, seen a, a curricular and instructional model that hasn't evolved a whole lot in the last 120 odd years. They're private. They have huge endowments very influential alumni, but, you know, they're, they're, nobody's going to confuse them with Michigan. Um, but in addition to those two groups, then you also have um, state schools um, that began to emerge in the 30s and 40s and 50s as American higher education grew and democratized. Um, and, and these are not their flagship schools um, in these states. Um, and so they are, they don't really, uh, you know, follow the traditional academic profile of the private liberal arts colleges, but they're also not the exact same, you know, as their, um, you know, you know, their, their flagship brethren. Um, and so 
they want to participate in sports too, because even by the 1920s and 30s, we have successfully, you know, inculcated in a popular mind that college activity involves college sports. And so they seek out uh, these athletic opportunities, but they know darn good and well that they're never going to, you know, likely equal Iowa or Michigan or Ohio State in terms of enrollment and devotion and fan following and money and all the rest of it. So they just want to find, um, you know, a sort of a mid-level where, you know, they can they can compete with uh, like-minded peers as, as much as they're able. Um, and then a, another group that I examine are historically Black colleges, um, which also want to pursue kind of, you know, sports on that medium time, um, you know, model, but because of segregation are kept out entirely. So there's, in fact, a, a varying you know, number of strains that all seek to use athletics for varying purposes. Um, and, and, and that's a, a key factor. Um, but another thing, though, is that even within the world of mainstream sports and within the NCAA, up until the 1950s, there was still a belief that we would be able to restrain the commercialized model, that sports as Ohio State and Alabama and, and USC participated in, we, that we could rein that in. That the, somehow the NCAA would be able to create a consensual environment where we would drastically change what was considered the dominant form of intercollegiate athletics. And that was, that was still in play. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, I mean, I, I call it a bit of a fantasy, though I have to admit that I, I sort of wish I was part of this, this revolt on my part. But the, the smaller schools literally envisioned seizing control of the NCAA. And at one point in 1951, um, this guy stands up at the NCAA meeting. And I mean, it's, it's literally a call to the barricades for a peasant revolt. Um, and, and they think this, they might actually be able to carry this off. Um, and, and so it's, it's kind of fascinating for me to look at, you know, somebody who has a rough understanding of how academic committee work uh, operates, which I can assure my non-academic <laughs> listeners, there's nothing sexy or interesting about academic committee work. Um, but, you know, these guys who are kind of masters of the process and they, they really think they are at a moment where they're going to redirect the flow of the Mississippi um, and change the face of American intercollegiate athletics. So let's talk about the story about how we get there. And maybe the first place to start, you talked about committees. And while it is not sexy, a little understanding about how the NCAA works actually is important to understanding the story you tell. So, so I'll start maybe by saying, so the broad question I'd like to ask is, how is it that the larger universities that participated in and imagined a larger commercial model for sports how do they manage to dominate the NCAA for so long? And, and in specific, uh, you talk about the sanity code and its failure. So what are the, some of the fault lines within those larger schools? And how does, how does the sanity code reflect um, the ways in which the interests they have might actually be more identical than the argument about the sanity code would suggest? Well, so the NCAA was founded. It wasn't founded by big-time schools. In fact, they rejected it. It was a creation of a what was called the so-called brutality crisis mm -hmm. in college football in 1905, and it was mostly uh, liberal arts colleges. At, at minimum, they were uninfluential. It mm -hmm. certainly didn't involve Harvard. It didn't involve Yale. It didn't involve Princeton. Um, and it was a reaction to public concern that college football was too violent and unregulated and out of control. Um, and the NCAA in its early decade grew very, very slowly and did not really involve these influential schools. However, in 1910, college football witnessed another brutality crisis, and many schools began to realize that the NCAA created the appearance that, hey, here is a group of academics who want to fix the problem, but these member schools that are largely the purveyors of big time college football and thus are practicing, you know, trading in this violence are not part of the solution. They're part of the problem. And so they start joining the NCAA fairly slowly, largely for the perception of cover that they are, in fact, part of what is being described as a reformist organization. The way in which the NCAA attempted to attract these schools was to tout what was called the home rule principle 
which is that the NCAA had no national binding legislation. You were not going to be, as a member school, bound by any decision the NCAA made. They had no regulatory power whatsoever in the first 45-odd years of the association's uh, history. Um, but what they did attempt to do is, you know, make a lot of noise that the NCAA was essentially on the case. You know, they lobbied uh, federal legislation to try to do more about uh, physical fitness. You know, the NCAA did a very good job of carving out for itself a space in the public dialogue over fitness and preparedness when it came to wartime. And, and so they, they created, you know, this, this sense that they were a very vested shareholder in the enterprise. Um, but they don't really have any authority to reform college sports if reform involves decommercializing it. Um, and so in this regard, the, the way, kind of one of the carrots, if you will, that we welcome these bigger schools is to give over to them the things that really do concern them, which is the running of commercialized sports. Um, I should probably take a second here and, and maybe offer a quick rough explanation. We, we often in our public dialogue about the NCAA describe it as this monolithic autocracy. And there are certain components of that that are not inaccurate, but we have to remember the NCAA is a membership organization. It has a permanent staff that are non-academics, but all of the decisions about how the NCAA is going to operate um, are made by its academic member institutions. And at the heart of that still is the committee structure. Um, and one of the things in the early years of the NCAA that really mattered were the rules committees. You know, essentially, let's agree on the games that we're all going to play. Um, and then once the NCAA began sponsoring championships in the 1920s, then you also had the championships committees. The only people who gave a darn about those committees were the ones who were willing to play for championships. In other words, the biggest, you know, purveyors of the sport. So by the 1930s, the tradition within the NCAA is that the big time commercial schools dominate the committee structure far in excess, or I should say far out of proportion of what their actual uh, numbers in the membership are. Um, so their control over shaping the sort of agenda of the NCAA is really what allows the NCAA to be concerned only with the big time commercial model. And our, our popular perception that NCAA sports is you know big time football in the basketball tournament really stems from that period. Even though the majority of NCAA members then and still now do not play at that level. And the sanity code was an effort um, to, well, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't think we've written the last word on the sanity code. There's, there's still quite a lot, I think, that academics are, you know, there's a lot of supposition about it. We've, we've written a lot. Um, Ron Smith has devoted whole books to trying to understand the sanity code, and he's come closer, <laughs> I think, than most of us. Um, but I, I take a fairly cynical view of the sanity code. I, I really don't think it was designed uh, too much at really um, decommercializing college sports in large measure because I don't think anybody really ever achieved any consensus on that. It was an attempt at trying to create something resembling a level playing field. And in particular, it was against Southern schools who were more willing to embrace outright academic or athletic scholarships um, and, and, you know, rein that in because the largest uh, proponents of it came from uh, schools that were still leery about outright athletic scholarships, but were still managing to subsidize their athletes through other means, mostly through jobs programs. Um, but the presumption on the part of many who were an advocate of the sanity code, which for our listeners, it was a, an effort um, in 1950 uh, to try to create a universal uh, standard that would make the NCAA a regulatory agency. It would include the power to expel groups from the NCAA. It would create uniform national standards on eligibility and recruiting and subsidization. It was a massive watershed moment potentially for the NCAA. And it passed, barely, uh, but then it lost all teeth almost immediately. Um, and, and in that regard, then, the the, the schools that were in favor of it, and the Big Ten was a, a big driving voice in this, they thought they had 
a lot of allied support with the private liberal arts colleges. And, and the problem was they both looked at the sanity code in very, very different contexts. And, and what Tug Wilson and the, and the Big Ten thought was reform didn't really square with what the private liberal arts colleges saw as reform. And, and eventually the, the, the sanity code is, is uh, well, at first it's utterly emasculated and then it's actually abolished. Um, and as a result, then the NCAA has to wait for a while before they become a big time regulatory agency. What do these three kind of constituencies in terms of feeling unsatisfied with um, the NCAA? And, and one of them is this group of smaller universities and colleges um, who wanted to have competitive athletics, but wanted tournaments and structures that, that allowed them to play on an equal footing. Um, then there's the group that you've referred to. You talk about it in the in the book as the liberal arts agenda. And I think most listeners, if without reading the, the book, would imagine this as an anti-sports agenda. And I don't really see, from, from your book, I don't see that. They have a different vision for what sports should be. So could you talk about that? Yeah. Um, again, one of the the misconceptions we think about college athletics is that it's this sort of binary argument between the, you know, the heathen commercialists in the, in the athletic building, and then the pointy headed uh, intellectuals who want pure college sport, whatever the heck that means. Um, and uh, one of the things about the private liberal arts colleges going all the way back, you know, well into the 19th century. And in some instances that there are still vestiges of it to this day, um, they were not opposed to competitive sports. Um, in fact, they aggressively sought out competitive sports. They embraced intercollegiate activity um, because in their mind, competition was a, an integral point, an integral part uh, of the, the development of the individual. Um, most of these were still all male well into the 20th century. And so it was wrapped up in our gendered expectations of, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to train the next generation of American, you know, corporate titans and military generals and presidents and, and legislators. And, and so uh, imbuing in them a sense of, of competitiveness um, was a key aspect of what they wanted to deliver. And fitness, you know, going back to the Greek model about a fit mind and a fit body, all of this was were things that the, the private liberal arts colleges embraced. So it wasn't that they didn't want competitive sports. What they wanted was a model that restrained the commercialism. And their concern was the way in which commercial college athletics was funded, which was essentially through the, the paying gate and you know, the repercussions of media exposure. And, and their concern was, is look, we're saying sports matters. They're important. They're a key part of the curriculum, but we can't then fund it in a way that makes their future vulnerable and dangerous. If it's really that important, then we need to fund it the same way we fund, you know, the physics department of the foreign languages program, all right? And it needs to go into the line item of the university budget, because if not, then we leave it to the vagaries of the market. And the reason the public pays for sports is because they want to see winning teams. And then that means what we really have to do is make sure we win. And that is the, you know, sort of the, the pathway and the road to perdition, because then we've got to build bigger and bigger facilities and we've got to be more and more aggressive in our recruiting and we've got to seek out more and more media attention. And all of those are opportunities to engage in ethical missteps um, that is the root of the real liberal arts opposition to competitive sports. So they're not opposed to competitive sports. They just want to see an environment where we don't have to win to make the venture work, because in their mind, there's still, you know, benefit in losing from an academic and an intellectual perspective. Winning is fun. They're willing to admit it. But uh, losing doesn't have to be the thing where we have to fire guys and, and you know, blow the thing up and start all over again. Yeah, this is a you don't address this directly in the book, but I was intrigued because one of the things you say about this model is that it's because sports is viewed as so important in producing the leaders of tomorrow, participation in sports, uh, many of these people in these liberal arts schools believe has to be much broader than it can be in a competitive model. And I was really struck by the 
ways in which some of the advocates of women's sports share a few similarities, right? They both, I, I read your account about the importance of participation and I also see that in the writings of uh, physical educators and who are, who are talking about the importance of participation for sports for women, but with a very different understanding of the gendered nature of sports and about what sports are supposed to accomplish. And I don't know if they, people who write about women's sports talk about the male model without, I think, often understanding that male models are plural rather than singular. Um, and I don't know if there's a specific question there, but I wonder if that you ever thought about this, the, the way in which this meshed or merged or, or touched on women, ideas about women in sports. Yeah, it, well, actually there's quite a bit and I, I, I make a, an obligatory, you know, sort of acknowledgement on it in the conclusion, but I purposely stayed away from it because I think it's a whole separate book. Uh -huh. um, but there are lots of parallels here. The first that, that you're most openly alluding to is this notion that um, there are benefits to participation. Um, and certainly the private liberal arts um, model understood that competitiveness was one, you know, the, the language that we often still use to describe high school sports in particular, mm -hmm. um, you know, the work ethic, uh, the, the values and the, the lessons learned from you know, devoting yourself to to a task and 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 seeking a goal and and all of those things are part of it. Um, another issue, and again, here's a parallel with the role of women, is that we do accept, for whatever reason, that that sports achieves a certain level of authenticity and legitimacy, and thus to participate in it is to Im enjoy a certain level of acceptance. It, it certainly shapes the way in which we talk about race and athletics, mm -hmm. but to, you know, if you, if you know much about the history of women in academia, you're out, you know, irregardless of athletics, women have been held at such a distance in American higher education. I mean, I, I was amazed when I discovered in 1971, both Michigan and UCLA still had all male college bands for God's sakes. Really? Um, it, the women were seen as such an auxiliary role in the extracurriculum. The admissions department was happy to, you know, welcome them and their tuition dollars and all the rest of it. But in terms of the role of women in college athletic or, or college, you know, social extracurricular environments, um, cheerleading was really the only place that women were really welcomed. Um, and I've written a, a little bit about that and, and, and the, the, you know, in another location, but it was really a shock to me when I first came across how much at arm's length um, women were held. So to participate in sports is not just, you know, a way for women to enjoy equitable access to the same values and same lessons that we provide the men, but it is also to assert for themselves um, an equal footing in the way in which you know, they are accepted and, and enjoy a, a certain prominence. Um, and then a, a third thing is also the, and, and I do feel very comfortable in making this assertion, um, that the way in which the NCAA uh, addressed the role of women in the 70s and the way in which they dealt with slash went to war with the AIAW, which was the original uh, organizational body for women's sports, they learned those tactics and those lessons in how they dealt with the NAIA and historically black colleges. And, you know, they, they basically uh, marginalized them using exact replicas from the playbook that they developed in the 1950s um, that I talk about in my book. Yeah. I was really struck by that, by that uh, comparison. Um, race or historically black colleges and universities, um, are another strand of opposition, uh, at least for a while, to the NCAA. And so maybe you could say a little bit about um, why the NAIA is willing over time to accept black uh, historically black colleges as members and why they have such a harder time gaining that kind of acceptance with the NCAA. Um, well, I generally tend to reject the historical model of, you know, great men. Uh, I, I think history is, is uh, usually a collection of very complex forces. But in this instance, I think it's a, a fair argument to make that the leadership of the NAIA and the leadership of the NCAA made a difference. Mm -hmm. 
the NCAA was deeply ambivalent about pursuing uh, what were then just simply referred to as HBCs, historically black colleges. Um, I never found any evidence that showed any explicitly overt racist sentiment from those individuals. Um, and these are people like Walter Byers. Uh, these are people like uh, Tug Wilson, um, as well as early presidents of the NCAA. Um, but I did see in them some explicit and some where you I was not too very difficult to read between the lines, some deep, deep ambivalence um, about HBC membership and um, the difficulties of black life in, in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, and the flip side of that is that in the NAIA, uh, they had the benefit of a of leadership named Al Dewar. Um, that before Al Dewar, there was a, a guy named Liston who was also sympathetic, but he wasn't nearly the activist that Dewar was. But Dewar came into leadership of the NAIA, um, and he was deeply committed to egalitarian notions, and he was willing to put his money where his mouth was. Um, he literally, you know, basically, um, you know, challenged the Southern schools. Look, if you're really not going to participate in this, then then quit. Join, you know, abandon your membership. But, you know, we're going to be an integrated institution. Um, and, and he also uh, leveraged the institutional prominence of the NAIA in Kansas City uh, with the hotel and restaurant industry. I mean, and, and again, he, he put it baldly. If you don't want to play ball with us, we'll take our business elsewhere. And they did. They actually moved uh, their their hotel uh, accommodations and, and took the business away from one of the more recalcitrant hotels in the city of Kansas City. And at one point, they threatened to take the entire NAIA out of Kansas City and move it to Indianapolis, well before the NCAA moved to Indianapolis. Um, and, and Dewar was forceful and insistent. Um, one of the ways that Dewar was able to pull that off, though, was that while he was insistent on, on embracing um, egalitarianism, he was an even dealer. Um, he recognized that you know, many of the Southern member schools were not themselves inherently racist, but they were creations of racist political structures and, and educational systems in their home states and attempted to be as accommodating as possible. Um, you know, he, he was genuine in how he uh, communicated in, in far deep contrast to the way the NCAA operated. Uh, looking at correspondence involving NCAA officials is to uncover a mine of duplicity and doublespeak and, and in one instance, outright conspiracy. Um, and, and so I, I really think that Dewar managed to not merely shape and change the racial uh, membership and, and policies of the NAIA, uh, but do so in a way that drastically welcomed uh, Black membership. Um, and the NCAA just was, as I said, deeply ambivalent. It, it, it's, I think it's unfair to label them as explicitly racist uh, because the evidence isn't there. They may very well have been, but I, I, I just didn't find anything that was really, you know, as I said, explicit. Um, I think, you know, um, painfully ambivalent is a, a better description. Uh, but the other thing is, is the NCAA could afford for a while to be that ambivalent. The NAIA as a newer organization was attempting to grow its membership and its ideological approach to competitive sports. And so, you know, in many instances, we see that, you know, the, the necessity of circumstance uh, can help change our social views. Um, and so I think that was a, a driving factor also. But I, I do think the personalities in this instance were decisive. So there are conflicts between and within these organizations in, in, in the years before the early 50s. But this all comes to a head in the early 50s. Um, and so maybe I, I guess I'll start by saying, why does it come to a head in the early 50s? And second, you mentioned the name of Walter Byers. Maybe you could say a little bit about him and, and what his stake in all of this was. Um, well, and, and you centered on kind of the, the confluence of all of these strands. Um, so the, after World War II, uh, there are several things shaping college sports, um, one of which is the drastic growth of American academia in general. You know, the, many of the Big Ten schools become small cities. I mean, 
uh, Wisconsin, Ohio State, 40, 50,000 students in the years after uh, World War II. And so one of the things that makes um, academicians anxious is in creating um, you know, communities, for lack of a better phrase, this large, how do we cohere them? How do we create in them an actual community? And they all believe, I'm not sure with how much evidence, but that sports is central to that, that we, we need to you know, create a, a singular student body and athletics then becomes a key part of that. So as American academia explodes, um, big time commercialized sports that you know, whip us all up into a frenzy and, and want us to see ourselves as all part of the same tribe um, is also then elevated. Um, a part of that growing prominence then is also a willingness on the part of some to fudge the rules. And there are some notable scandals then in the early 1950s. Uh, in both college football and college basketball. Uh, probably the most notable one from basketball's perspective is uh, the gambling scandal point shaving um, in New York, uh, which inevitably ensnared seven campuses, but almost everybody who's looked at it believes the number is far larger. That was the, the number of schools identified in the New York District Attorney's indictment. And I think it was about 21 players uh, ensnared. Uh, but again, almost everybody is convinced it was larger than that. Um, and, and that caused many people to realize, wow, college sports is sort of operating without any guardrails. Um, so there is a, a greater impetus now for the NCAA to once again take another shot here at regulation. And, you know, you would have thought that having tried and failed with the sanity code, this would have wiped out that, um, you know, incentive for, a, you know, a good many years. And it's within a couple of years then that the NCAA once again wants to examine this. And there's a, a much greater amount of public pressure. But the scandals are also driving, you know, these, these other constituents that I've talked about. They're driving away, um, you know, some of the private liberal arts colleges who are just deciding, you know, I, I just don't think I'm ever going to be able to find a home in the NCAA because all they care about is sports for money. Uh, the efforts of Al Dewar has also begun to wit, you know, uh, see the growth of the uh, historically black colleges. And so for a time, the NAIA actually has a greater membership base than the NCAA does. So the NCAA basically is at a crossroads. Um, they've got to figure out a way to regain control of the narrative, regain control of the membership, um, without really challenging the dominant interest of the power base in the NCAA, which is the big time commercialized models or commercialized schools, I should say. Um, and so the growth of basketball provides them with a tremendous amount of money. The NCAA tournament in the 40s became not just profitable in the sense that it was breaking even, but it becomes the single largest revenue strain of the NCAA. Um, and so now they have money and that allows them to engage in enforcement. Um, but they don't yet have any leverage. And the leverage comes from television. It's not televised college basketball, it's televised college football. But the fear is that access to televised, unlimited access to televised college football is going to allow some schools to get fabulously wealthy and it'll kill the gates at many other schools. And the logic basically is, why would I pay to go to somebody's game and maybe sit in the cold and have to wait in line for the bathroom when I can watch Ohio State for free on television in the comfort of my own home? Mm -hmm. And so the membership in fear turns to the NCAA as an institution and says, basically, let's put together a package that will regulate how games are televised and make sure nobody gets out too far ahead of everyone else. And then as a result, the NCAA controls the television package and can keep schools who are in violation of NCAA rules off of television and thus deny them the money that comes from their share of the NCAA television package. So this is the making of the NCAA as a regulatory institution in the 50s. The problem is the NCAA has a ton of what I call sort of loose cannons, these guys that want to stand up at the meeting and try to seize control of the, of the organization. Um, and some of them are leaving the NCAA to go to the, NC, the NAIA. And so the NCAA has got to figure out a way to, to you know, restore order 
in, in the, the system. And the way they do that is to create a separate basketball tournament for these smaller colleges because they're getting a lot of criticism because it's impossible to get into the NCAA. You know, in the 1950s, there's still only like 16 teams getting into the NCAA basketball tournament. It actually varies year after year. Uh, sometimes it gets as high as 19. It drops below as like 15 at one point. It varies from year to year. But it's still a very, very limited environment. And so they decide that by granting a separate basketball tournament, this manages to solve a whole bunch of problems. One, the, the state schools now no longer need to go to the NAIA to get access to a postseason championship event. Basketball is the, the, the original uh, expression of what they used to call the college division. So that, that stanches the membership flow. The other thing is now they can also allow HBCs to participate because they're never going to participate against the big state schools because they're in separate classifications. So Alabama, LSU, they can now all tolerate this because it's never going to force them to be confronted with a scenario where they will be facing an HBC and have a home state, you know, governor like George Wallace you know, stand in the locker room door, basically. Um, and the private liberal arts colleges who were deeply ambivalent about the championships at all now are forced to say, okay, am I going to be the first one out of the NCAA? And, you know, that scene in Jerry Maguire where they storm out and nobody goes uh -huh. with them kind of thing. Um, and then they're left with, all right, the NAIA probably follows sports on a model that I can more identify with, but it's the NCAA that has the lobbying ear of Congress. It's the NCAA that, that you know, sets rules and, and uh, participates in the Olympic process. In other words, this notion of prestige now has forced the, the liberal arts colleges to choose. And so the line that I use in the book is that while money and college football created the, the arm of, you know, the regulatory arm of the NCAA, it was the piece out of basketball that allowed the NCAA to hold itself together and exhibit that authority in the first place. Mm -hmm. And Byers comes in. Um, Byers is the first full-time employee of the NCAA. Mm -hmm. um, he's the first executive director. And um, so he's, you know, Dean Acheson president at the creation. Um, and and his his influence is entirely linked with the large commercialized schools. Um, he, after he retired from the NCAA in the 80s, uh, he wrote a very scathing kind of first person memoir called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, where he kind of takes off after his former Confederates. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was a handmaiden in all of that um, and really, really disdained. Uh, the efforts of the liberal arts, uh, you know, um, reform movement and did much to try to marginalize them. Well, we've taken a lot of your time. The book is much richer than we've had, than we have the ability to summarize in, in just 40 or 50 minutes. But I did want to ask you a couple kind of broader takeaways. Um, one of them is uh, just a response to the fact that I read this and I just got this overwhelming, I guess, maybe backwards or inverted sense of deja vu that the same arguments seem to come up again and again and again, and the same, is, is that having done this for much longer and much more intensively in the research project, do you get a sense that this is one long argument about the same thing, or do the issues and the stakes really change between the time your book ends and the, and, and, and the early 2000s? Well, you could probably argue both, but I, I tend to uh, believe that the academic study of intercollegiate athletics is the intellectual version of the Bill Murray movie uh, Groundhog Day. <laughs> um, at one level, it is the same argument with just different nouns um, and, you know, different, you know, uh, impulses in the Petri dish. Um um, Michael Oriard, who's a brilliant writer and scholar at Oregon State, um, uh, does much about college athletics and, and what he calls the fundamental contradiction in American intercollegiate and academic um, you know, environment is that um, sports in American colleges attempts to operate for reasons that don't serve the intellectual academic function. 
They are driven by this commercialized model. And, and so there is, until you resolve the contradiction, there is no reform that can take place. And, 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 and uh, uh, Ron Smith, who's now retired at Penn State, has written whole books on, on this reform history. And, and one of them, he actually did just a history of the reform processes. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of cyclicalness that he, he shows. You know, presidents kind of engage and disengage and re-engage. And there's been all kinds of efforts to reform college athletics. And one of the things he points out is, one, we can't even agree on what the hell reform even means. Uh, but the other issue is, is that none of this is ever going to get fixed until we can address what Oriard calls that fundamental contradiction. Um, and so, you know, and then back to your other point is, is it is fundamentally different if you're, you know, if you follow college athletics right now, it's obviously witnessing a tremendous amount of upheaval. Uh, a, a lot of this has been driven by the desire to be more honest and equitable towards the rights of athletes um, and the students in terms of mobility and transferring their ability to at least get their turn at the trough financially through name, image and likeness licensing. Uh, better compensation in the form of full cost of attendance from scholarships. You know, all of this is about an effort to acknowledge the historic inequities. Um, but what does it really mean for the future of college athletics? And, and one of the things that is generally not ever being considered is decommercializing college athletics. In other words, it's how do we fix the system without really fundamentally transforming it? And so, I, I, you know, there's a lot of, of, of different issues here. Most notably, we have finally, and in my mind, belatedly involved the, the students themselves in the conversation, but we're not really fundamentally challenging the model of college athletics, which is, okay, we're, we're making a heck of a lot of money. How do we allow, you know, this to continue to operate? And now we have to start, you know, directing some of that revenue to, to players and, and to women through Title IX and and we want to do all this, but by all means, let's not make sure, you know, we do anything that harms the, the goose that's laying the golden egg. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, I think in some regard, you know, like I, as you point out, there is a lot of cyclicalness. And, and as I was writing this book, uh, I, like most of us who are academics, we got sent home in March of, of 2020. And, you know, after I got done teaching my Zoom class, there was basically, you know, no committee work, nothing else. So I was able to devote myself to intensively to writing. And is college athletics, you know, that the, uh, you know, in, in an academic world, when they canceled the NCAA tournament, I think for many people, that's what made the pandemic real. It's, right. oh my God, now there's, you know, real consequences yep. for some of us. Like, I'm not going to be able to take off work and watch basketball nonstop mm -hmm. for three weeks. Um, and financially, that was the moment at which I could hear these voices from my book, these private liberal arts guys saying, I told you so. Um, you know, the, the canceling the NCAA tournament was to shut off the spigot of money that flowed to all of college athletics. And their response was, oh, my God, how are we going to be able to fund college athletics without this money? Um, and these private liberal arts colleges who are now overwhelmingly Division three, you know, I, I sort of imagine, imagine the ghosts of those guys responding quite easily. Thank you very much. If you'd listened to us 65 years ago. Um, and, and so there is a, a certain amount of cyclicalness. And then the other thing is, is also the, um, again, as I was writing the book and I'm watching what's going on again that same summer with Black Lives Matter. And, and one of the fundamental arguments that I think is, is feeding um, Black activism in America today is a sense that not nearly enough um, white, particularly white elites, institutional elites, fully understand the legacy of segregation and discrimination. And again, I'm thinking about the way in which some of these NCAA leaders who were not overtly racist and certainly would have bristled at being labeled that way, but had no real grasp of what their policies actually meant mm -hmm. for Black Americans in the way in which um, you know, the, the legacies of segregation and discrimination continued uh, to appear. And, and so I'm thinking about the way in which people in 2019 and 2020 got righteously indignant 
about assertions that there were continued inequities and legacies. Um, and one of the things I think that, that Black Americans now and in the book were arguing about is, you don't really understand what it's like to walk a mile in our shoes. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly we saw that in the argument over law enforcement and the interaction of Black Americans with law enforcement. But, you know, one brief example from the book is the NCAA said, hey, we're not racist, we're not discriminatory, and everybody's welcome. And then they held their annual convention in Dallas, Texas at a segregated hotel. Mm -hmm. And the Black delegates were like, how do you not get this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, so those kinds of things, I, you know, again, I think there is a, a, there are lessons there, you know, from the past that, um, you know, can, can certainly still have, have voice. Yeah. No, that's, those are excellent observations. And I'll just add one, one thing. Um, from my experience teaching at small institutions, one in NAIA school, one now the, a D2 school, but, but in each of which the percentage of the student body, at least the full-time student body who were athletes, is probably a third. And the budget implications kind of flip when the university depends on tuition revenue from athletics to fund the broader budget for the university rather than trying to fund athletics out of the university budget. And I think often people who are not part of higher education assume that the model at, we're recording this two days after the national championship football game, so at Georgia and Alabama is, is the typical model that athletes um, encounter. But in fact, I think it's much more common that athletics is a much bigger has a much bigger role on campus on a day-to-day -day, um, level of, of the number of people who will not be in your class on a particular day or the number of people who have to schedule for the percentage of your students who have to schedule around practice time simply because the percentages of athletes are so much higher at smaller schools. Yeah, and, and, and I know we're running up against the end here, so I don't want to go on too long, but um, one of the interesting things about that is, uh, again, I think a derivative of the period that I'm writing about is that um, as athletics has achieved a sort of cultural, you know, position of legitimacy, um, being able to offer athletics as an enticement is a way that smaller universities, and I know, I'm sure Newman does it, I guarantee you my university does it, this is a way to really protect enrollment. You know, yeah. we talked earlier on about values and what, you know, what sports is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I would venture to say that for most university presidents now and boards of regions, what the biggest value of athletics is to their school is it's a way to get students who wouldn't otherwise be on their campus and paying in their dorms and their meal halls and all of those revenue streams. Um, you know, and, and I teach at a fairly small NAIA campus and we'll give a kid a $500 scholarship uh, to come play, you know, fill in the blank for us. And, you know, for the amount of money we're spending on a college scholarship for the thousands of dollars they give us back in tuition, that's the cheapest investment you could possibly imagine. And so athletics is actually growing because it's simply a magnet for enrollment. And it has nothing to do with competitiveness or commercialization. Yeah. And and while there's lots to be said about women's sports, uh, one of uh, it, 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 a lot of the debate about Title IX in, in implementation of Title IX, of course, revolved around how were we going to fund it. But but the flip side of that is also true. Offering women's sports at small schools like this offer more slots where you can get more tuition dollars. Yep. So so we've taken a lot of your time. I, I always end with the same two questions. One of which um, this is uh, Martin Luther King Day weekend, or we're approaching that. Um, and this is our first week of teaching, which at least for me means no grading over the weekend. So I have this brief break where I can read or watch something. Um, what do you have a book or a movie or a documentary or something you can re recommend to me and to the audience um, that you think we should go out and read or watch? Um, well, I'm sure there's probably lots I could come up with, but when you, you emailed me this, because yeah. uh, and thankfully for that, because I'd have really been caught flat footed had you not given me uh, <laughs> you know a heads up on this. But in terms of things, particularly that, that shaped the, the, the book, um, Milton Katz uh, wrote an absolutely excellent biography of John McClendon. I had never heard of John McClendon uh -huh. because, again, I wasn't much of a basketball aficionado before I wrote the book. Uh, but McClendon's a, a, a brilliant character. Um, he's at the cutting edge of so much of, of American basketball. 
great story, uh, grows up, you know, uh, black in Kansas and in the, the 20s and the 30s, uh, goes to KU um, and just boldly informs James Naismith that he wants to coach and will he be his advisor? And Naismith says, sure. I mean, you know, he's a kind of a larger than life character. He integrates the pool at KU by simply jumping in. And when the pool manager disgustedly drains it, you know, McClendon says, well, I'm going to be back next week. I mean, the guy's got some chutzpah to him. And um, McClendon's just a, a wonderful individual. And, and Katz does a, a really good job of capturing him. And, and he talks a lot about some of the, the similar issues that I do in my book. But, you know, in a, in a way, the way the way that biography can that you often can in a traditional monograph. Um, and so McClendon's book is a or the, the Katz's book on McClendon is a, is a great read. I recommend it to individuals. We'll go look for it. And then the second question is always an unfair question for academics um, because you've just put years of your life into a book and we've given you some months of a break, maybe a few more for you. Um, but but I have to ask it, what are you working on now? Uh, so I'm thinking about a project um, in the 1860s. Um, huh. In 1869, um, Harvard goes to England and rose against Oxford on the banks of the Thames. Huh. Um, and I, I, one of the things that I'm curious about is um, how it is that Americans at the time placed so much emphasis on college identity. When, when do universities, and particularly mm-hmm. their sports teams, become this part of tribal identity? You know, our concept of alma mater, um, when, you know, when, when, when undergraduates talk about their athletic teams, you know, they talk about it in the first person, where does that come from? Um, and in particular, in comparison to the English model, um, some of which does much to shape our understanding of American athletics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a break there and I don't quite, I don't know where it is and where it comes from and, and why we end up looking at sports vastly different than England does and, and the rest of Europe. Um, and it's also a good opportunity for me to apply for a Fulbright and <laughs> so I can go do research <laughs> at Oxford. <laughs> We've been listening to Kurt Kemper talk about his book, Before March Madness, The Wars for the Soul of College Basketball. It's a wonderful book. There's much more to the book than, than we've been able to talk about. So go out and, and buy the book. Um, uh, but Kurt, thank you so much for your time. I hope that you'll come back on the show the next time when you've got this book done. And I hope that... Um, that you will keep quiet about the enjoyment of living in England so the rest of you and us are not too jealous about what you get to do. Well, thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed it.